Turn now, friends, to the chapters that we read in First Chronicles, and I'll read there at verse 28 of 15. Thus all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with shouting and with sound of the cornet and with trumpets and with cymbals, making a noise with psalteries and harps. So my theme this morning, my friends, is shouting aloud to the Lord. When did you last shout aloud to the Lord? Tell me. When did you last shout aloud to the Lord? In enthusiastic praise and joy? Or is there something lacking? What's gone wrong? Again and again, we're told to sing and to shout and make a joyful noise unto the Lord. I wonder how good we are at that. Well, perhaps David can teach us something today, because David is the one that introduced singing into worship. There was no singing. The worship was silent before David's time. All through the time of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses, Joshua, the worship was silent apart from the trumpets sounding at the sacrifice. Now, all of a sudden, it seems, the whole church of God breaks out. Joyful song. How wonderful is that? What has happened? Ah, because David is celebrating the covenant, as he says here in, in chapter 16. The messianic covenant of which David is the first head is the promised, the promise of the Messiah, the mighty Savior, our glorious divine Savior. And so this new note of certainty <clears throat> caused the people to break their silence and to sing. And, of course, in the Old Testament, they used other things. They used their trumpets and their psalteries and their harps and their cymbals. Why do we not do that today? Well, friends, it's because we have come nearer. It's because we are now nearer, much nearer than these people were. <clears throat> if you're speaking to your wife, you don't use a trumpet. Because you had an intimate relationship and conversation. But in those days, they were a bit further away. And so they were given these instruments to help them in the days of limited knowledge. These instruments were used to stir them up. But as Jesus said, as we heard already this morning, those that worship him will worship him, not with trumpets and harps, but in spirit and in truth. In spirit and in truth. That's the replacement, you could say, 
for these trumpets? Do you have that spirit? These instruments were there to stimulate and stir the people in their praise and to organize and guide, direct the praise. We now have the spirit. Do you feel that spirit stirring you as you sing, uniting us in our praise to God? Well, here are four things at which we can learn from David about how to make our singing the very best, make our praise glorious. I was just speaking to somebody who comes to our service in Lockerbie and he's saying, I, I, was, I was talking to somebody in the street about that wee service in the Ebenezer Hall and he was saying to me, I, I hear that singing. And he said, well, why don't you come in? No, oh, no interest in praising God. But he was hearing. He was hearing the singing. That was the witness from even behind closed doors that was reaching that unregenerate sinner outside. We must shout aloud to the Lord. Well, first of all, there is the correct organization. Any musical person will tell you that music has to be organized. It's a skill. It's an art. It's something in which we have to be trained. And David was, a, was skillful, and he taught the people. First of all, he had the musicians. It says in verse 16, I think, of chapter 15, <clears throat> And David spake to the chief of the Levites to appoint their brethren to be singers with instruments of music, psalteries and harps and cymbals sounding by lifting up the voice with joy. You think that happened overnight? Never. It required practice, didn't it? How could all these things work unless there was harmony? unless there was timing, unless there was practice. It's good to have a samadhi practice, isn't it? Time so that our singing can be better and better and better, more worthy of our God. Yes, the correct organization required practice, and David made sure that all the participants knew that they could contribute Something, even if it was just a shout. Second thing is the, the singers had to memorize. Next chapter, verse 7. Then on that day, David delivered this psalm to thank the Lord into the hand of Asaph and his brethren. He had written out this psalm. So how did they sing it? They just did one sheet. They didn't have loads of paper in those days to circulate. Most of them, hardly any of them, could read or write. So, of course, Asaph had to gather the people together, and he had to recite this psalm and get them to repeat it and repeat it until they had memorized the whole psalm, so that when the day arrived, they all knew it word for word, this glorious 
psalm of praise was presented so beautifully on this day to honor the Lord. It's good to memorize scripture and good to memorize the psalms. We get it in Sunday school, Sabbath school, don't we? Someone has recommended we memorize the 119th psalm. Perhaps you've done it yourself. The singers had to memorize. The procession had to be planned. You see how David said to them, you are the chief of the fathers of the Levites. He chose these people. He said, this is your job. Sanctify yourselves. That's the first step. True worship requires this. You need time set apart in which you prepare your mind and your heart. So that when the time comes for the presenter to stand up and to sing, you're already in tune, you could say, in spirit, because you have sanctified your heart. He said, sanctify <clears throat> yourselves, both you and your brethren, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel into the place that I have prepared for it. <clears throat> So you see what singing does. Singing can bring the spirit into the worship. If we are all of one heart and one mind, remember the apostles? What did they do before the spirit came? They met together with one mind and one heart. And so that's the way the began. The procession wasn't just a mighty people of marching in step. It was a matter of being of the one mind sanctified for the work. <clears throat> and verse 13, it says, because you did it not at the first, the Lord made a breach upon us for that we sought him not after due order. He tried it. They tried this before. This was the second time because the first time was a disaster. Remember, David was so enthusiastic. He said, "Let's bring the ark back," and they put it on a cart and they put the oxen in front to carry it. And <coughs> excuse me, they put a man to guide the oxen, and it, the oxen stumbled, and he put out his hand. Next thing. Struck dead. What a disaster. Because they had offended the Lord. What a thing to avoid, isn't it? How angry the Lord was that they had not done it in due order. We can drive away the spirit from among us. If we do not pay attention to the Lord and what he would have us do, let us do it, not our way, but his way. In fact, it wasn't their way, it was the Philistines' way. It was the Philistines' idea to put the ark onto a cart and put the oxen in front, remember? And they set them going and they went all the way across the border. 
Don't we find that in churches today? They're bringing the Philistines' way into the worship. Oh, let's preserve God. <coughs> Excuse me, God's way of worship. Let's preserve God's way of worship and be thankful that we have the correct order. But you know, the correct order can be as dead as a dodo. Not the order that makes the worship is necessary, but along with the order, there must be more. Let's go on to the next point, on to the smooth operation. This is the next stage in this wonderful, successful um, welcoming, you can say, of the Lord back into the place of worship. The first thing was that it was sanctified by God. These Levites sanctifying wouldn't have done very much in, its, in itself. It was good in its way. But what they wanted was God's participation. And that's what they got. God participated. It says in verse 26. And it came to pass when God helped the Levites that bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord. This was no easy job carrying this heavy ark of wood and gold, the stone, um, <clears throat> Ten Commandments inside and other things, and um, the rough road which the oxen stumbled over. No, it took a lot of effort. But this is what we're told. God helped the Levites that bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Are you one of those friends? Are you a Levite? Are you one of those that's been sanctified to the Lord? In the Old Testament, of course, it was just a certain tribe, a certain family that were included in this, and nobody else could take part. But today we can all be Levites. You can carry your own testimony and desire for the presence of the Lord. So ask the Lord to help you to bring a contribution of spirit into the worship. And then the worship will be sanctified by God. Is he sanctifying us today? The smooth operation required the sanctifying by God. It required the sacrifices by the priests, verse 26 also says, and they offered seven bullocks and seven rams to the Lord. <clears throat> What's all this killing that's going on? What's all this bloodshed? Is it really necessary to have all this going on? <clears throat> well, what we have to remember, what we have to remember, friends, is that a sacrifice <clears throat> A sacrifice was a means of making peace with God. It was a means that God provided by which he said, I, you will be acceptable if you make this costly sacrifice and if you um, kill these animals, stab them to death in my presence. 
What did that signify? Each time they saw a poor animal dying, they would say, that's my sin. It was a confession of sin. The wages of sin is death. So all these rams were killed as the people were confessing their sinfulness. Oh God, my sin, my sin. That's an essential part of the worship. It's a part of the operation of worship. And if it's missing, it's like having a wheel missing off your vehicle. There can be no progress. And there's, unless in your heart you're saying, Lord, my sin. I'm confessing it. I'm admitting I'm a broken, useless sinner. We're useless people. What use are we to God? When we see our own, when we're reduced to nothing, then we are ready to receive something from God. Bring your sacrifice of confession. Not only sanctified and sanctified, but shouted. The people shouted, just as we said in our text. <clears throat> then all Israel brought up the Ark of the Covenant with shouting. Why were they shouting? What's it all about? They just couldn't contain themselves. I heard of an old, perhaps I told you, an old Negro, if you can use that word today, an African slave in America. He was working in this big, where a big um, manufacturing shed with lots and lots of other people all busy. And this man had discovered that his sins were forgiven. He had to come home. Jesus died for me. He took my sins and I am free. And he wanted to shout. And he went up to the boss and said to the boss, can I shout? And the boss said, not, not now, boy. This is not the right time. I'll tell you. And then at the break, when the break came, he said, all right, Johnny, you can shout. And the whole shed echoed with the shout of Johnny's forgiveness. And why are you not shouting, friends? Have you nothing to shout about? He shouted to the Lord. And then there was this. There was the heavenly inspiration. David, remember, is in the background organizing all this. He was brilliant. Uh, you could see it doing this, but of course, it's because he had the spirit of the Lord. And it was the spirit who was behind all of this wonderful transaction. And we read that on that day, <clears throat> probably means a um, few days before, um, it just means on the occasion, David brought a new inspired word for the people to sing. And we get it laid out for us. 
in chapter 16. He gave it to Asaph and his brethren. Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Sing unto him. Sing psalms to him. Talk of all his wondrous works. And so went on from glory to glory. What a wonderful psalm. But, of course, the importance of this, this is a vital part in the worship. Because while these people were doing something, they had to know why they were doing it. They had to be instructed. They had to be stirred up. This is why there was all this enthusiasm. It's because they understood. Because of what we can call the heavenly inspiration. These words were not the words of men. They were words that had come down from heaven, placed in the heart of the sweet psalmist of Israel, written out on his paper and handed over to Asaph. And so there was conveyed from heaven glorious, inspiring words that stirred the heart and informed the mind and transformed the people. Just look at this. I just mentioned briefly as we close. Um, I'm not going to go on very long. <clears throat> what was it that inspired? Brought this tremendous enthusiasm and joy and Shouting. Well, friends, David was saying through this psalm, and God was saying, Here are your commands. I'm not leaving you to your usual disorder and sin. I'm coming to you with directions, with commands. It says in verse 8, Give thanks to the Lord. Call on his name. Make known his deeds. That's your duty. That's your commands. And it goes on. Seek the Lord and his strength. Remember his marvelous works. Be mindful always of his covenant. How happy the people were. Some people don't like to be told what to do. But these Israelites were in the spirit. And so they were just ready. Just, he said, just tell us what to do. Just tell us what to do. Remember some soldiers at, some Highland soldiers at the Battle of Waterloo. And they were suffering the withering fire of the French all day. And when the Duke of Wellington came past, they said, sir, can we go? They wanted to charge. He said, wait. I'll tell you the moment. He was such a brilliant general that he knew that he mustn't go until he could assess how successful their charge would be. Benz, is the Lord commanding you to do something? What are you doing for the Lord? Here are your commands. Sing, seek the Lord, remember, be mindful, give thanks. 
here's your commands. Here is your command. The next thing that was inspiring was this. Here is your heritage. Said, here you are today. Where have you come from? Look back. Look back. Be mindful of his covenant, which he commanded to a thousand generations. Can you imagine that? How long is this world going to last? Have you ever asked anybody? Have you ever thought about it? A thousand generations. You think the Lord's coming back tomorrow? A thousand generations means 40,000 years. It's a long way to go. But we're to be thankful that it will come. It will come. But of course, he's, he's telling them to look back <clears throat> over the generations that are already gone. And he's saying to them, look what God has done for your people. You are the inheritors of great things. They're built into your very mindset, your very blood and bones, these mighty acts of God. And you can read through them, of course, in Egypt <clears throat> and in Canaan, how he delivered them again and again, your heritage. That's inspiring. Friends, our church living in difficult times, but we're carrying along. We're under the momentum of our great heritage. We've gone through hard times before. And third, here is your gospel. 23. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Show forth from day to day his salvation. This is what they're singing about. This is what they've got from heaven. That God is a God of salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And if you are saved, then you must sing. Or you must, if you can't sing, then shout. Because, excuse me, the gospel is so inspiring. Of course, we know what it means. We've already mentioned it. It means that the very Son of God came down to such misery and shame to save every soul that he loves. If you grasp today the amazement, with amazement that the Son of God should die for you, is there anything more inspiring? Is there anything more worth talking about? How often do we mention it? That we're saved only because he did that. That's what made us, that's what brought us to salvation. That he sacrificed as the Lamb of God, his own body and blood in the horror and torment and shame of, of Calvary's cross. Here is your gospel. And just to finish off, friends, there's a glorious institution all right, there's a correct organization, a smooth operation, a heavenly inspiration. There's a glorious institution. And this is all to inspire us to greater praise and to see more 
the, the necessity, the urgency to be praising to the utmost, praising our God. And so here we read in the psalm <clears throat> that God has instituted, he's built something for us. This worship has been built for us and designed for us by God. You remember as a child when your father brought back a new car and parked it outside the house. You all ran out to see the new car and you were amazed. This is ours. This car beautifully built to carry you everywhere. All the latest means of heating and comfort and um, <clears throat> speed and everything else. Well, friends, the Lord has designed praise and worship. He's given us this beautiful machine, this beautiful means of rendering praise to Almighty God. So it makes it possible for poor sinners to be acceptable. He loves to hear us. Here is your worship, he says in verse 28. Give unto the Lord, ye kindred of the people, Give unto the Lord glory and strength. In other words, there is a definition of worship. It's to be glorious and it is to be strong. Not a feeble whimper like you sometimes hear in a meeting. Glorious and strong. God has designed it and he's given us the capacity. Here is your worship. And then... Here is your dominion. David has got this message for them. He said, you are conquerors. That's why you can worship. It says in verse 31, <clears throat> let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let men say among the nations, the Lord reigns going on here do you ever think stop and think that we have the ability and the authority to speak to the heavens and tell them to be glad we can tell the whole earth around you the hills and the fields and the beasts let the earth rejoice and you can tell every living soul why are you not praising your God? What right do we, do we have to do that? I sometimes go around doors, as you know, knocking on doors, and people say, what are you doing here? Who sent you? I said, well, I believe God sent me here to tell you the need to turn to God. It's time to turn from sin. Your life is passing. The judgment is nearly here. I have a right to do that. Nobody has a right to stop me because I have the dominion. I have the authority of God. We have an authority to praise and worship and rejoice and glory in our Savior. Our friends. And the final thing in worship is mentioned is prayer. Here is your prayer. Do you have a prayer today? 
You have a burden in your heart. You have something you'd love to say to the Lord. This is what David says. Here's his prayer. Save us, O God of our salvation. Gather us together. Deliver us from the heathen. That we may give thanks. To thy holy name. And glory in thy praise. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we confess that we have failed to praise thee as we should. Our hearts have been dull and numb and dead, heavy-hearted, and we are not listening to the command to shout, to rejoice, to be joyful in this God of our salvation. Stir us up, Lord, that the whole earth may hear our voice. And may stop and be convicted of their dumb silence, their failure to honor the God in whose hand their breath is. O oh Lord, may everything breathing praise the Lord and help us also. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.